The reading tonight comes from Luke 13. I'm going to read 22 through 30, and then we'll look at through 35 in a few moments. Verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, let's go to our text tonight, and uh, we pick it up in verse 22 as we're going through the gospel of Luke, Uh, and I'm uh, amazed at how it seems like repeated themes keep coming up, but these themes that we see throughout uh, the gospel narrative are very strategic. And so the text opens and it says that he, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, and he's doing two particular things. Number one, he's stopping along the way and he is teaching, the text tells us, and he's also journeying toward Jerusalem. And uh, this verse right here tells us a whole lot about who Jesus is, what he's doing, and then it actually gives us some very practical, I think, and very godly advice. As Jesus is going, notice the text points out that he's going to towns and he's also going to villages. And that's Luke's way of pointing out that Jesus is stopping in some places, towns, and there are large crowds. And he's stopping in some places, villages, and they're very small crowds. But notice the two things that Jesus is doing when he stops, whether the crowd is large or whether the crowd is small. It says that he is teaching, but he's also continuing this very sacred journey toward Jerusalem. And so as Jesus goes from town or village, whether it's large or small, he is stopping and he is teaching. He's teaching the way of the kingdom, which he is inaugurating as the Messiah. But he's also continuing the journey and people are picking up that he is on this journey toward Jerusalem. We know that in Luke 9.51, the text tells us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And that's a key point in Luke's gospel because now Jesus is on this journey to the cross. And so while he is teaching the way of the kingdom, that he is inaugurating, that he is starting, he's also still on this journey to die as the Messiah for the world. And I think one of the practical things that we take away from that sentence that many times we read over is that Jesus is faithful in preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, whether he's in a town or a village, whether it's large or small. And I think for all of us who are Christians, we are all called to ministry. And I think that reminds us that that ministry that honors Jesus is faithful in the large things and also in the small things. It's Luke 16.10 that Jesus is going to be telling us in just a few weeks. Uh, It's in Luke 16.10 where he tells us, if you are faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in the large ones. 
And notice how he said that. He says, if you are faithful in the little things, you will be faithful with the large ones. And again, that calls out to us, I believe, to make sure that, especially as we're doing ministry of any kind, whatever that looks like, we, a, lot, a lot of times we think of big, we think of numbers and those type things, but God calls us to be faithful in the small things first. I, that's why I love that quote that says, faithfulness in the little things is a big thing. Faithfulness in the little things is a big thing. And so many times we can get called up and we say, well, I don't want to do that. That seems small. That seems mundane. I want to do something big. And it's great to have aspiration. But the question is, will we be faithful in the small things so that God can give us the larger things? It's like a Sunday school teacher. I remember hearing this story years ago. There was a Sunday school teacher who would go in and he would get frustrated every Sunday because the chalkboard was not wiped and his erasers, they were not dusted. And he just got so mad. He would go in and every Sunday he'd walk in. There was his Sunday school lesson from the previous week. And he would get mad that no one erased that and no one dusted off the erasers. And so one day he went to the church janitor and he said, why do I walk in here every Sunday? I'm prepared to teach. I got to feed the people and my chalkboard, it is not wiped down. And the erasers, they're not dusted. Church janitor looked at him and just said, well, you know, I just thought the person who could write could also wipe. <laughs> And it's true, a lot of times we think, well, I'm here to do the big thing, right? And someone else can take care of the small thing. No, 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 we got to be faithful in the small so that God can give us more. And there are many principles in Scripture about that. So Jesus is on his way. He's going from towns and villages, being faithful in teaching the Word of God. That's inaugurating the kingdom, but also moving toward crucifixion, which will be the culmination of that. And then in verse 23, we see again, someone in the crowd said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few. Will those who are saved be few? In other words, how many people will be saved? There's going to be a few people. There's going to be a lot of people. Uh, And as you read that question, you know that that is a hypothetical question, right? Uh, And, you know, people like to say the devil's in the details. I like to say the devil's in the hypothetical. You can run a lot of different rabbit trails asking hypothetical questions, although they can be fun. But this man on this day is asking this question, are those who, notice the question, will those who are saved be few? Now, he could be naturally curious, right? And honestly wrestling with this question. And, you know, we all wonder with, you know, who will be saved, how many will be saved, those type questions. When I was growing up, the question was always asked, you know, they would say things like, well, if you sin and you're a Christian, and then you have a car wreck before you repent, do you go to heaven? Right? Right? I grew up, uh, when I was uh, coming up, I went to a Church of Christ University. And so the question there, the hypothetical question there was always, well, if you say you believe in Jesus and you're driving to your baptism and you don't make it, (laughs) do you get in? Right? I literally had a a student that was there at the same time say, well, I'm not sure if you're going to dip your toe in and you have a heart attack, I don't know if you get in. And I'm like... The devil is in the hypothetical question, let me tell you. But he could naturally be very, very curious, or uh, this could be a question that comes out of his upbringing as well. Uh, There were many Jews at that time who believed in national salvation, and some people believe that to this day. Most of the time they're called Zionists. They believe in national salvation, and that works like this. If you are born a Jew, meaning you have Jewish blood in you, right? What that means is you're circumcised on the eighth day, then you eat 
kosher, right? Follow the kosher laws, and then you follow the Sabbath laws, and so that equals salvation. So birth plus circumcision plus kosher plus Sabbath equals then salvation. And and that was widespread in the first century. And as you're reading and interpreting scripture and people refer to the law a lot of times, many times it's referring to the moral law as it's written. But the Jews of the day were interpreting that as circumcision, kosher, and Sabbath because that's how you were saved, if you will. So he could have been wrestling with this idea is that, you know, how does this work? We kind of thought that all these people around here who am circumcised, following kosher laws and kept the Sabbath, that those are the ones that are going to be saved, and we can kind of see who they are, so are few going to get in? And the truth is, we really don't know. What we do know is that anytime someone's asking a hypothetical question, uh, we all know what BBQ means, right? Barbecue. Uh, but we also need to remember QBQ. Anytime someone's asking a hypothetical question, there's always a question behind the question, right? There's some underlying question that they really want to uncover, if you will. And so as this person asks this question, as Jesus is on his way, as he's journeying along and there are people there, he's probably living with a very serious question uh, that he wants answered and it's probably not just this one. However, this question that he's asking is somewhat flawed. He's asking the question in terms of salvation being some future event that's going to take place. Whereas we know from New Testament theology that salvation is something we experience now and that we live into on into eternity. And actually that's where Jesus takes the conversation. Because while the man is asking a hypothetical question, Jesus gives a very practical, actionable answer that can be lived right now. And Jesus has a way of doing this. Whenever we get off in theory, whenever we get off in hypothetical things, Jesus tends to bring it back to real life right now. What are you going to do? So the man asked the question, Lord, will those who are saved, meaning in the future, will they be few? And he, Jesus, said to them. Notice he answers people. Verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek, notice the word seek, to enter and will not be able. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen, that's resurrection language, and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. There's a lot going on right there. Notice that he starts with the word strive, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. The word strive there means that there is a dedication and determination to contend for something. That's what the word means. There's dedication, there's determination that I'm going to contend for something, which presupposes the idea that I believe in something enough to contend for it. And so when Jesus says strive here, he's not just talking about works righteousness or good works. He's not talking about those things. He's saying believe the gospel to the core of your being so much so that you will contend for it with your life. And so he says strive to enter the narrow door. And he says for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The word seek here is also a very interesting word, but Strive and seek mean two different things. While striving means that there is this determination to contend for something because I believe it to my core, seek means to inquire information about. 
And so Jesus says that there are going to be people who will strive, and that's what he's encouraging the crowd on this day to do, to strive, to contend for the faith that they believe at their core, and then there's going to be some who kind of seek it out, who they inquire about it, if you will. Almost like playing with the information and trying to make a decision to whether I think it's valid or not. Now notice also Jesus used interesting language here. When he says strive to enter through the narrow door, he uses three particular words that I want to point out. He says, for many I tell you will seek, notice that word, to enter and will not be able to. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to go outside and knock at the door saying or asking, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock, ask. Sound familiar? Ask, seek, knock. Remember that? Both in Matthew's gospel and also in Luke's gospel, Luke 11, so just a couple of chapters ago, 9 through 13, Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock. Ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. But here, now he's saying, oh, there's going to be people who seek and they're not going to be able to go in. There's going to be people who knock and the door's not going to open. There's going to be people who ask and they're not going to get the answer they want. So obviously here, Jesus is pointing to something different than what he was teaching in Luke 11, 9 through 13. In Luke 11, 9 through 13, he's talking about right now while we live this life, meaning while we have breath in our lungs, while we are living beings here on this planet, he says, ask, seek, knock. God will come through with what you're asking for, what you're seeking for, what you're knocking for. God will give an answer. But now he's saying there is coming a day. There's coming a day where there will be no more asking. There's coming a day where there will be no more seeking. There's coming a day where there will be no more knocking and he's pointing again as we saw last week he's pointing again toward this reality that there comes this time when eternity becomes the new reality in which we all live into and so one day it'll be too late to ask and one day it'll be too late to inquire and seek and one day it'll be too late to knock and again he's telling them that Jesus is keeping this urgency and this immediacy before them all the time. Every time he gets to ask a question, he goes to this and he keeps pushing to this on the crowds around him. Choose today because there's coming a day where you're not going to be able to choose. And what he's asking them to choose or putting before him to choose, he's saying strive to enter the narrow door. The narrow door. And the narrow door, there's several things. I want to point out four things, what that means. Number one, the narrow door is a specific door. It's not vague. Number two, the narrow door is an exclusive door. So there's not options. Number three, the narrow door is a singular door. Notice he says, strive to enter through the, not a, but the narrow door. It's singular. And number four, the narrow door is personal. It is personal, meaning only you can walk through the door for you. Are you with me there? 
Leon Montgomery, I've told you about my grandfather before. Leon Montgomery was one of the most faithful men of God I've ever met in my life. Led hundreds and hundreds of people to Christ. He'd preach in revivals. He'd preach in churches. Uh, Many, many people went into pastoral ministry because of his ministry and other kinds of ministries. My grandfather was a faithful man. He is the hero of our family and rightly so. But when Leon Montgomery died and he went into the presence of the Lord, he, he did not die in any way did his salvation then get applied to his family. You with me there? And a lot of times we, we convince ourselves that, you know, oh yes, we're a Christian family, some head of the family is a Christian person, so yes, I'm connected to this, so surely God, and, and, and we, don't even, we won't say it out loud because we know it sounds crazy, but we lull ourselves into thinking that way. Because someone prominent in our life is a Christian, I'm connected to them, then somehow I should get in you. You got to have your own personal relationship. And Jesus says, so you have to strive, believe to the core of your being, you walk through the narrow door, and you walk through that narrow door every single day. Every single day. It's not just something that happens in eternity. And Jesus was very clear, though, on the fact of eternity with John 14, 6. Uh, we know it. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except by me. You know what no one means in Greek? No one. That's right. Or Acts 4.12. <laughs> Acts 4.12, right? There's no other name under heaven by which men be, may be saved. Like, it, it's not there. Jesus is the narrow door. We strive and we contend for the gospel of Jesus. Or we don't. Okay? And I know we, we like to, you know, somehow get very nice and, and things like that. But there is no other door. And Jesus doesn't even leave room for another door. And so it's Jesus or not Jesus. And he's saying there's coming a day where there's no more seeking, there's no more knocking, there's no more saying, Lord, will you open up to us? While you're breathing, those are the things we need to cry out for. You with me? Yes. Good. So, once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you'll not be able to knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. He says, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. What an interesting phrase. I do not know where you come from. Now, a question that we ask all the time in our culture is, where do you come from? Where are you from? Right? That's how we ask it. Where are you from? A question that was very important in the first century was, who do you come from? Because your genealogy mattered, right? That's why Matthew's gospel starts with a genealogy written to a Jewish audience. really mattered. So the phrase, where do you come from, the word from there is family terminology. It's who do you belong to, okay? Who do you belong to? We see this in 1 John 4. 1 John 4, starting in verse 1, says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now, at the right, when John is writing this, is in the world already and has been since he wrote it. Verse 4, little children, you are from God he says, to the people 
the church. You are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We like to quote the last part of that verse, but the reason why he who is greater is in me, the one that's in me than he that is in the world is because now I am from God, because I've been born again. That's where that language is very, very important. So what Jesus is saying to them here, what we see is when he says, I do not know where you come from, Jesus is saying there's coming a day where you will want to get in. You will want to get in, but I'm going to have to say, I don't know you. You don't belong to me. You're not a part of the family. Jesus is saying that day is coming. I can't let you in. I can't let you in. It's too late because you are not mine. Notice their response, verse 26. But then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Notice that. Their response is, but, 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 you were with us. You were present. You were close in proximity. That's what they're talking about. Yes, God is always close in proximity because God is omnipresent. He's not talking about close in proximity. He's talking about closeness in terms of relationship. Relationship. I love the quote that says, you may have eternal language, but it does not mean you have eternal life. Those are two different things. And that's one of the things that those of us, at least who grew up in the church in the South, have to make sure of. I don't want anyone to question their salvation as long as they really are a believer. Because we can have all the terminology. We're around Jesus. Jesus, we were around you. That's what they're saying. You were in close proximity to us. He says, yeah, but I didn't know you. I didn't know you. And so when he says, they will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Verse 27, he says, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. We don't have this relationship, so depart from me, all you workers of evil, he says. And he says, in that place, in that moment in time, proceeding right before eternity, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see, though, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And as far as that casting out goes, remember Revelation 20, 11 through 15, that we looked at last week. But what Jesus is saying to them here is that the family, though, the family that belongs to God, the family that's the narrow door family, if you want to put it that way, the family that belongs to God, he points them out. It's the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets. They are the kingdom people. It's through that line. That's the one you have to be a part of that family. And then we as Gentiles, uh, Romans 11, 11 and following, we're grafted into it, right? He says the family that belongs to God, the ones that are from God, it started with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It ran through the prophets. It's come through the Messiah who's now come. And all those who are part of that spiritual line, they are the kingdom people, he is saying. And again, as Gentiles were grafted in, thank you for that. Galatians 3 speaks of this. 
Because remember, the Jews would just say, well, Abraham is our father. Galatians 3, 6 and following says that Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7, Galatians 3, 7. Know then that, though, that it is those of faith, not of blood, of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And again, those who are of faith now have been grafted in to this great plan of salvation that God has done throughout human history, throughout the world, starting with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, running through the prophets, running all the way up to the Messiah coming. He's been running ever since, ever since. And Jew and Gentile alike may come in, but only through the door, only through Jesus himself. And so he talks about this narrow door family and he says, yes, there's going to come this point where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but there's also going to come this point with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets when they come into the fulfillment of the kingdom in all of its glory. And yes, there will be two sides. Yes, some will be cast out. Yes, some will be welcomed in. That is just a part of reality. He says, and the people will come, those who get to come in, the people will come from east and west and from north and south. They will recline table in the kingdom of God. And then he says, and behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. He says, that's the narrow door family. Now, whenever we read, uh, a lot of times we have these, some will be the ones who are first will be last or last first. A lot of times we have those memorized in our mind and we just go around and we kind of throw them out as good principles. But when Jesus mentions this here, he's talking about people. You can't separate the statement from its context, okay? So notice what he says. He says that the narrow door people will come from east and west, from north and south. To a Jewish person hearing this, as Jesus is saying it, they start getting a little nervous. Because the people who come into the kingdom, the, the, that's not necessarily how it works because the location for the kingdom people in their mind is one because there's only one holy land. And Jesus is saying, oh, no, no, they're going to come from everywhere. Whole globe. Every tribe and tongue. He didn't use that language. That's what he's implying. And that's what they would be hearing. And they're going to recline at table in the kingdom. And so part of what Jesus is communicating here is this kingdom that he is establishing, that he's inaugurating, is going to come to this crescendo and the death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus. It is vast and it is global. It is also countercultural when it comes to class systems, economy, and those type things. But then he says, behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And it just sounds like a random principle, but he's talking about people. So who is first? Do you remember? Who is first and who is last? Who is it that he is talking about? The word last, Gentiles. Word first, Jews. And all these people are going to come from east and west, north and south is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament 
that God is going to reach the Gentiles. Remember what Jesus said to the 12 as he sent them out in Matthew 10, 5 and following. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles or enter the towns of Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We see this mentioned over and over, even throughout the Gospels. I must first go, first, go to Israel. What was Paul's missionary plan throughout the book of Acts? Where did he always go? He went to the Jew first. And he kept doing it over and over. And then the Gentile, first, last. Now Jesus is saying to them, some are last who will actually be first. Some are first who will actually be last. I believe this is correct because of what happens next. Verse 31, if we could keep going, says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, by the way, you may be thinking, why is a Pharisee coming to him and warning him about something here? They're not all bad, okay? At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Herod wants to kill you. And so some Pharisees who are being influenced by Jesus are now helping him by saying, Herod's after you. Jesus says, go and tell that fox. He was not using that like foxy. It's an insult. Foxes were sly and destructive. That's how people saw them. Wanted nothing to do with them. Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will finish my course, referencing what's going to happen in the resurrection. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And there, it's a little sarcastic. But notice, these Pharisees come to Jesus, they warn him, again, they were not all bad, and Jesus' response back is very simple, that Herod, the sly, destructive, political fox, cannot stop God's plan of salvation. It is going to happen, the third day is going to come. It is going to come. And then he says, I get it, a prophet should not perish away from Jerusalem, and I say that, he's saying that tongue-in-cheek because of what he says next is very true. Verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Remember, some are last who will be first, and first who will be last. And he looks and he says, Jerusalem, God has been so, the Father has been so patient with you, but you're not willing. Instead, you killed the prophets he sent to, you stoned them, you ran them off. But God has been so patient with you, he's been calling out to you, but you were not willing. And he's telling them, if you're Jew, and he's listening, listening to him, he says, yes, I'm coming to you. 
Absolutely. You are the people of the covenants. You're the people of the promises. But if you're not willing, I'm going to the Gentiles because I want the whole world. But it starts with you. But he reminds them, you've not been willing. Instead of listening to the prophets, you've been killing the prophets. And verse 35 says, behold, your house is forsaken. And we know what happened in 70 AD. Not too many years after this, Jesus gives this prophecy. He's going to give it in more detail as we go throughout Luke. 70 AD, temple leveled. Absolutely leveled. And Jesus says, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I think what Jesus is doing there is he's reminding them that God has been patient, but your house is forsaken. You've been rejecting what God has been doing. It's going to come to its ultimate fulfillment in 70 AD. We see that. But he says, you will see me when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I think Jesus is giving a hint there that some who are going to be there on that day who will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, right? Palm Sunday, if you forgot. Some of those who are there on that day who are saying that out loud, some of them will enter through the narrow door. Jesus is saying, I believe, he's hinting, some are going to see me for who I really am. And I think in this moment, the crowd is sitting there going, oh boy. You ask a simple question that you think is simple. How, how many are going to be saved? And all of a sudden, all of this unfolds, which I think tells us something about prayer, by the way. Uh, whenever we go to God in prayer, and we start asking or praying hypothetical prayers, just know that God is probably going to give you a very practical, actionable answer. <laughs> That's one. But to answer the question, and Jesus does answer the question, I think, if you look at the whole thing. The question is, how many will be saved? Jesus' answer could be summarized, I think, in three words. Are you saved? If you want to add a fourth word, it would be, are you saved now? Because at the end of the day, that's the most relevant question. Hypothetical questions always point to some nebulous future. And God always brings it back to, are you with me today? Amen? Amen. So, Father, we pray that we, as we sit here in this room, would be with you today. And, Lord, would you help us build our life on the truth of who your Son is and then do everything we can to go everywhere we can and make that truth known. But for those of us who will, in a moment, stand up and sing a song, hear a prayer, maybe have some coffee and refreshments, go get in our car and leave, or may we drive off the property tonight knowing that we are saved today. And may we be concerned about that and that alone. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. Amen. Mm -hmm.